Good evening. Open your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 5. In and around the mall of Washington, D.C. are some very famous monuments and memorials. One of the most famous is the Lincoln Memorial. It has 36 columns representing the number of states that were in the Union at the time of Lincoln's death. On the wall is his Gettysburg's address on one side and the other his inaugural address. Both are filled with scripture references, which you might think makes you glad they're etched in stone and they can't be taken off. Every day when the sun rises over Washington, the first rays fall on the eastern side of the tallest structure, the 555-foot-tall Washington Monument. The architect wanted the first rays to catch and reflect off that aluminum capstone where these words are described, two words in Latin, L-A-U-S-D-O, Latin for praise be to God. One author said, I think it's in Latin so most people can't read it and sue the government to have it removed. If you were to walk up 897 steps to the top, there are 50 landings where you can catch your breath. And at these landings, you'll find memorial stones. One is a prayer offered by the city leaders of Baltimore. Further up is a memorial stone presented by the Chinese Christian. And then there's one it was presented by the Sunday school children from New York and Philadelphia, and it quotes Proverbs 10, verse 7. The memory of the righteous is blessed, but the name of the wicked will pass away. But I keep going back to that, those Latin words at the top. Thinking the first thing to catch the light of day is praise to the Lord. That kind of surprises us in a way, at least it does me, I know, because typically the higher up you go, the more you climb the ladder, the more success you have, the more power, the more position, the more prestige, the harder it is to kneel in humility. We don't think of it that way. We think of just the opposite. See, the gospel is troubling to so many people, not because it demands so much, but really it starts with demanding that they acknowledge their own unimportance. That's where it starts. Spiritual humility comes before spiritual healing. And that's the truth that the man we're going to talk about tonight learned in a very personal way. And why I think we have his story in Scripture. He was at the top of the ladder. Impressive, wealthy, powerful, successive. He could do just about anything but kneel. Humility wasn't in his vocabulary and it almost cost him his life. His brief mention in Scripture is in 2 Kings chapter 5. So I want to encourage you to open your Bibles there. We meet this very proud man who had everything going for him, except for, as the story opens, a very obvious problem. <clears throat> 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1. Now Naaman was a commander in the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier. If we stop the story right there, here's what we would know about him. Just from reading the Hebrew text, he was not just the leader of the army. You might say he was the supreme commander. However you might be organized, we might should think of a five-star general. This is Naaman. This is his success. This is his position. And the words in Hebrew kind of help us to understand he was a great man. 
And what we get there are the implications of not just his social standing, but also his influence. The king knew him well. Knew him by first name. The Bible tells us he was highly respected. And what that means there literally is one who is lifted up in face. And I think we understand that terminology because we might refer to someone who loses face. Well, this is just the opposite of that. Naaman had the highest respect you could imagine. And notice in the text, he was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. We read in another chapter, 1 Kings 22, that Naaman was the commanding army that defeated King Ahab. Remember Ahab? Awful king. His wife Jezebel, does that ring a bell? This wicked couple ruled the northern tribes of Israel. They split away from the southern tribes of Judah. And none of the northern kings were following the Lord, and Ahab was among the most defiant. And eventually, the Lord allowed the Syrian army to take him out, to take him down. And in that battle, you might remember, King Ahab disguised himself and went into battle and he was fatally hit. And the way 1 Kings chapter 22 describes it, at random there was an arrow shot. It went between his armor and he basically bled to death. Talked about it puddling in the chariot and he died later that evening. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian who recorded in his antiquities that that nameless archer because it doesn't say in 1 Kings 22, but that nameless archer was Naaman. Everybody knew about Naaman. Now, it could have been nothing more than an urban legend, but he was a living legend. People knew him. They knew his name, especially within the pagan Syrian empire, if not beyond. So if you put a period right there, after all these verses in Title I, Naaman would have been at the top of his job. I mean, just so successful in control of everything in his world, prestigious, wealthy. In fact, when it mentions there a valiant soldier, what that was saying, what went with that, he's paid very well. So he is a wealthy man. The two are hand in hand, extremely successful. One author wrote this, Naaman was in command of everything. However, there was one thing he could not command, his health. And notice verse 1, how it ends, but... He had leprosy. He was wealthy, respected, victorious, in command, second only to the king, a living legend, but he had leprosy. And just the sound of that word, it changed everything. Changed everything for him and the way everybody thought of him. Now, there are numerous kinds of leprosy, by the way. We're not given the specifics here. It could have been Hansen's disease, the one that Paul Brand, maybe you heard of Dr. Paul Brand. He spent his life battling this with the patients in India. Leprosy had a numbing effect in the pain cells and the hands and the feet and the nose and the ears and the eyes. And so there was no warning system. And so if you had this, you would not think to blink your eye. And so you might have an issue and you wouldn't blink and so your eyes would dry out or they would get infected and you'd eventually lose your sight, not necessarily because of the leprosy, but because of the infection. And the same would happen in so many things. He said people would, would reach directly into fire and they'd grab a, a potato or a stick that was hot. But they didn't know that it was hot. So it wasn't the leprosy that caused the problem. It was the infection that happened. After, but the warning signals were gone. They go untreated. The sores on the hand, the eyes, all of that eventually brought gangrene and then amputation. Dr. Brand wrote on one occasion he was trying to open a rusty padlock 
a patient, a little malnourished 10-year-old boy, said, let me try. Here's a grown man trying to use a key and often open a rusty padlock. He said, the boy reached for the key and with a quick jerk of his hand, he turned the key in the lock. Bram was dumbfounded. He said, how could this weak youngster out-exert a grown man? And then he caught the sight of blood dripping onto the floor. And then he examined the boy's fingers. He discovered the act of turning had actually cut his finger to the bone. But the little boy couldn't feel it. He was just so happy to help. Well, the text implies that Naaman had only recently contracted the disease. So let's try to understand how desperate this is here. It won't be long before Naaman cannot hold a sword properly. It won't be long before he cannot ride his stallion and be able to squeeze it with his legs and hold on. He won't be able to lead the charge. He's not going to be sought out by soldiers, much less the king. In time, he won't be able to walk. He'll become an outcast. He'll be the person to avoid a tragic story on everyone's lips. He would no longer be the envy of the people of Syria. Nobody. Of all the awards he had, of all the positions, of all the titles he earned or perhaps enjoyed, now he would be known as Naaman the leper. Dr. Brand wrote this, Leprosy is a death by degrees. Bodily injury, physical scarring, ignorant abuse, a thousand different disorders, all because of the ability to sense it no longer exists. And by the way, that's what makes leprosy the perfect illustration for sin in the Old Testament. If you think about it, you might recall it being used in that way multiple times. But because sin is also death by degrees. Sin develops. The conscience hardens. There's an inability to sense danger or the repercussions of your poor choices and any self-destruction that it brings. You ask an unbeliever, unbeliever about their weekend full of wrong choices, bad choices, horrible living. Did you have a good time? Had a great time. Can't wait to do it again next weekend. There's no guilt. There's no remorse. Warren Wearsby made an excellent analogy between leprosy and sin. He wrote this, like leprosy, sin is deeper than the skin. It spreads. It defiles. It isolates. It's fit only for the judgment of God. And so throughout the Old Testament, the judgment of God is often seen in sending leprosy because it physically revealed what spiritually is going on. As if to say, you don't think you're a sinner? You don't think you've got problems? You don't believe you're sinning? Let me show you in a physical way the danger you're in, which then actually became an act of grace because becoming infected wakes you up, makes you realize, I'm in trouble. It's a physical reminder to the sinner to repent and to be healed. Now, during this time, not many Israelites cared to repent. That was not a common place, asking God for forgiveness. Elisha the prophet was ministering during the days of Naaman. He didn't record many repentance stories. Any confession stories, not many to be shared. And I say that because to me it's interesting to note this story in connection to what Jesus said in Luke chapter 4. Jesus is, is sharing one of his very first sermons there in the synagogue. 
launching his public ministry. And in that sermon, he makes the comment that his audience was just like the audience back in the days of Elisha. Now, you and I would read through that and maybe not understand exactly the connotation there, but it created such a rage in his audience. You remember, they chased him out of town and they wanted to throw him off the cliff. So what was he saying? When Jesus said those words to those Jews in his audience, because everybody knew, everybody knew what he's inferring. It wasn't, oh, what does he mean by that? They knew what he meant by that. The only person to repent of his sin and to turn to God and listen to the word of God was this pagan Syrian Gentile. Not the Hebrews. Not the Israelite. So the Jewish audience was infuriated. Luke 4, 27, he says, And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Don't call me a pagan. Don't call me a sinner. So this is the story of a Gentile leper, a man who will discover that grace and forgiveness of God cannot be bought. The cure is free. Look at the last part of verse 1. It says, But... He had leprosy. But let's keep reading. Verse 2. Now, bands from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl of Israel said to him. And by the way, kind of gives you a sense of how desperate Naaman is to be cured. He's hearing the advice of this captive slave girl. I know somebody who could help you. And he's all for it. He's ready to go. Look at verse 5. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I'm sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel from me. Now, get the scene here. Here you have the commanding officer of Israel's enemy standing in your court. They're not friends. They're enemies. So he's standing there, the commander of the, of, of the army. And and no doubt, surrounded by his own guard, with the letter from the Syrian king himself, saying, cure him. He's not thinking well about this. The king of Israel thinks it's all a trick, that this living legend is now in my palace, in my presence. He's about to take me out. And by the way, the king of Israel himself, an unrepentant man, never thinks of calling Elisha for help. Slave girl did. She knew, but not the king. Notice what happens next instead. Verse 8. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? In other words, he's saying, why have you not thought about God and his salvation? This is not about you at all. Have the man come to me and he will know there is a prophet in Israel. In other words, the God is alive and well and his word is true. Let me point out that Naaman and his entourage, as they mount their horses and they head to Elisha's house, they are under a couple of misconceptions. I didn't pass out a study guide or to outline to, to, 
fill in the blanks, but here's two points I want to make sure that we get. Two misconceptions that Naaman has. The first misconception is that healing is something that you can buy. That's what Naaman is thinking. Healing is something that you can buy for yourself. Look at verse 9. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Now keep in mind that Naaman has arrived with these gifts in exchange for a cure. Now in verse 5, we're told that Naaman brought 10 sets of clothing to give to the prophet. Now maybe that means 10 sets of clothing, like 10 changes, like when we go on a trip. And if it's a 10-day trip, we might be tempted to bring 10. Obviously this is a, a gift. But people in that day and time didn't have 10 sets of clothing. According to Russell Dilday of Mastering the Old Testament, he said what this would have been is not 10 sets of clothing, but the amount of cloth required for 10 sets of clothing. Almost like, here, you can make your own clothes. So it's not like I'm giving you my clothes, but this is a gift so that you can make yourself 10 sets of clothing. But again, understanding, they didn't have master closets like we have them. Some of you have 10 pairs of jeans. You're thinking, 10? Hmm. 10 pairs of khakis. That was not the case then. So think about them bringing a master closet worth of clothes, expensive clothes. That's kind of the picture that we get here. We're also told he had 10 talents of silver. That's approximately 8,448 ounces of silver. The 6,000 shekels of gold. Archaeologists help us to understand this is between about 2,400 ounces of gold. According to Deal Day, in today's economy, Naaman is standing at Elisha's doorstep with this gift, this exchange, this, this payment that amounts to $3.1 million. Basically, Naaman is leveraging everything he's got. If he doesn't cure this, his life is over. Everything's over. So he's like, you can have it all. Some even suggest his friends and family said, let me help. Go, get the best. Don't let money be an object to hold you back. No price is too high. Now, you would think Elisha would be rushing the door to, get, to greet this living legend for one or peeping out the blinds. I've heard about him. And now he's at my door. And then when he saw that $3.1 million, or the equivalent thereof, thinking, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. This prophet's just got his retirement fund. But he doesn't even answer the door. Look at verse 10. Elisha sent his messenger to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. Oh, and stop. Thanks for stopping by. It's kind of the idea you get. Are you kidding? You can only imagine Naaman's face just turning uh, colors with rage. I mean, here he's traveled to this foreign land. He's gone to this no-name prophet's house, bringing all this money. And this is the way he's greeted? Verse 11 tells us he was furious. Naaman went away angry. But Elisha understood that Naaman needed to be humbled before he could be cured. And so does every unrepentant sinner in the world today. In fact, in Naaman's reaction, you discovered a second misconception that he and the entire world, even today, of unbelievers have about God and about cleansing. 
First, they think the cure is something they can buy themselves. But secondly, they think the cure is something they can create themselves. He has an expectation of how it's going to go. You can imagine him thinking, okay, I'm going to bring all these gifts. And he's, he's playing it out in his mind. We do the same thing. And that's what's happening here. Notice Naaman is fuming. Verse 11. He said, and I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God. Wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not the rivers of Damascus better than the waters of Israel? Could now wash in them and be clean. So he turned and went off in a rage. Not what I expected. Not what I was anticipating. Thought the prophet would say the magic words. Maybe offer a prayer. Look at my payment, my gift. What's wrong? What's this about the Jordan River? Nobody wants to swim in there. Look at verse 12. Are not the rivers of Damascus better than any of the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So we turned and went off in a rage. I mean, if you're going to make me take a dip or two or seven, can it at least be in these rivers that I know that come straight from the mountains? None better than that. I'll dip in that water. In other words, let me get the cure my own way. I thought it would be something different, a better way. This is not what I expected. And Elisha knows that these misconceptions are eternally more significant than this incurable case of leprosy. So you can't buy forgiveness from God. And you only get the cure from sin if you do it according to God's way. See, Naaman is a great story for us to remember because he illustrates the heart of man. The problem with the gospel is not that it's too hard. It's not too hard. The problem, the challenge, if that's maybe a better word, is too humiliating. It's extremely humiliating to admit you're a sinner, to depend entirely on what somebody else did, what Jesus did on the cross. You can't save yourself. You can't pay your own way to believe in, in, in the cure that's Jesus Christ. Does that mean if you're following Buddha that one day you're going to find out it's too late? Yes, it does. If you're following the Dalai Lama, that means you're wrong. Following anybody else, it means you're wrong. And that's the challenge with the gospel. It is the answer. It is the only answer for sin. It's not that it's too difficult. It is dogmatic. It's the only way. Either believe in him or die. You remain a leper in your sin. You're an outcast forever from the kingdom of heaven. Donald Gray Barnhouse once said this way, everybody has the privilege of going to heaven God's way or going to hell their own way. Everybody has the privilege of going to heaven God's way or going to hell their own way. The cure for sin is not finding the best way, the way you think it should be. It's finding God's way. Because that's the only way. So for Naaman, this Old Testament illustration of sinful pride and the cure from God's prophet, it, it's kind of an elimination of these misconceptions. Naaman had them, but people still have them today, and we might follow into this. Notice what happens. He gets angry. He's in a rage. And then some anonymous servant. Boy, aren't you glad there's some servants who seem to have some wisdom in this story. Look at verse 13. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet has told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash 
and be cleansed. Somehow this lowly, humble servant can see the truth that this mighty, powerful, significant five-star general is not able to see. He's saying, humble yourself and you kneel to the command of the prophet of God. The travel some 20 miles, verse 14, so he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. Where did Elisha get the number seven from? Was it random? Did he realize Naaman's pride was so excessive that once wasn't enough? I'm going to show him seven times. Let's get him good and wet. Let's make sure that he goes all the way in. According to the Old Testament pattern of cleansing, if you go back and you read Leviticus 14, there's a whole section of that chapter that talks about the ceremonial cleaning of a leper. He's to be sprinkled by the blood of a sacrificed animal, making atonement and bringing reconciliation to God. It involves a complete bath in water. He remains outside the camp for seven days. He shaves off all the hair, all of it, eyebrows, everything, before he can come in. He takes the lamb, and that's a guilt offering. You see the symbolism of salvation there. It's throughout. And Elisha here is playing the part of the priest, and God was allowing the waters of Jordan to ceremonially clean him as well. And Naaman is a picture of this humbled, repentant sinner, cured by faith in God, when he does it God's way. It made me think of the lyrics. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath the flood lose all their guilty stain. And then in verse 14, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. And we understand that as well. We'll talk about a baby's skin. How, how, there's no wrinkles. There's no sunspots. It's just the most beautiful thing. You can't buy that. That's God doing this cure. You get it by plunging by faith and Christ makes you clean. Let's go back to that Washington moment, monument for just a moment. Gary Tolbert wrote about a little boy who traveled with his parents to see all the sites of Washington, D.C. And they were there at the Washington Monument. And the boy was just speechless, standing there at the base looking up Looking like he went all the way to the heavens. And he noticed a guard standing by, so he motioned to the guard and he said, I want to buy it. Talking about the monument. Well, they caught the guard off, uh, caught him off guard, and he said, Excuse me? So a little boy said it a little louder, I want to buy that. So the guard said, Well, just how much money do you have? And the little boy reached into his pocket and pulled out 25 cents. And the guard said, well, son, I'm sorry, but uh, that's not enough. And the little boy, ever the negotiator, said, well, I thought you might say that. So he reached into his other pocket and pulled out nine cents more. And so the guard looked down at the little boy, and then he squatted down, and he said to him, listen, son, you need to understand some things. First of all, you don't have enough money to buy this thing, 34 cents or $34 million. It's not enough to buy the Washington Monument. Secondly, you need to know that the Washington Monument is not for sale. If you are a U.S. citizen, the Washington Monument already belongs to you. It's yours, free of charge. 
forgiveness of sin, eternal life with God, are not for sale. They cannot be bought because they've already been bought. Jesus paid the price. They aren't for sale because He's given us salvation. And just like Naaman, sometimes we have to undo some misconceptions, whatever they may be, just like his or maybe our own set, and realize that we have to acknowledge that we're a sinner. We have leprosy. And if we don't do something, it's going to destroy us. But when we acknowledge that, He is oh so willing to save us. And Naaman reminds us of the truth that we're not saved by bringing our gifts to God. We can never do enough. We can never bring enough. We can never pay enough. We are saved by receiving the gifts from God. This cleansing. This forgiveness. And it's through a river. Through the river of Christ's blood. When you are immersed. And then you are cleansed. This is the most beautiful picture. Tonight, if you would like to be immersed and cleansed, we have the water ready. Or if we can pray for you in any way, once you come as we stand and sing to encourage you.